Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. This episode features Thomas Stubblefield, Associate Professor of Contemporary Art History and Media Studies at UMass Dartmouth and author of the new book, Drone Art, The Everywhere War as Medium. The book is an incisive account of art made by and about drones that coalesces around themes of power, control, surveillance and violence. It's the first to tackle drone art in a comprehensive fashion, and along the way it offers compelling insights into the technocultural apparatus of drone warfare and its effects on visual culture. Thomas Stubblefield, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. To kick things off, what brought you to researching drones? Well, my first book was on 9-11, and it looked at the role of absence, erasure, and invisibility um, in the culture surrounding that event. So it was something of a, a natural segue to consider the war on terror. Uh, since my work is, is rooted in media studies, drones became an immediate fascination for me um, because they really seem to integrate lens-based media, even though they challenged a lot of the dominant film theory and theories of photography and surveillance that I had been working with up to that point. So that they posed a number of interesting theoretical questions that felt really important at that time. Uh, so I was finishing up my first book and I presented at the dark side of the digital conference at the Center for 21st Century Studies at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And there I met a lot of other people working on drones and realized that it was uh, an emerging field and also realized that there was a kind of, at that time at least, somewhat of an absence of work being done on drone art. So, you know, I, I found a, a sort of niche in the emerging field and it seemed to bring together a lot of my, my interests. It's interesting that you tell that story actually, because the way you tell that story, because I arrived at drones um, in, a, in a sort of parallel fashion. My PhD work and my first book was on um, torture uh, in the war on terror and its relationship to culture and cultural representation and affect and power and so on. And after that, it, it, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, became interested in what were the, what had become the new forms of violence um, in the time since. And um, so, you know, I moved from, from torture as the sort of, um, iconic or emblematic form of violence of the Bush era to the drone as, as that of, um, of the Obama era and, um, and now the Trump era too, and surely, um, surely that of Biden as well. But, um, but yeah, a kind of parallel shift, right? Like what, what follows from, um, what follows from what happened in the, in the first wake of 9-11 and then how it transformed um, and turned into this forever war, I suppose. Um, so your latest book is called Drone Art and it offers an intriguingly ambivalent account of its subject matter. So in your reading, what is drone art? And from you know, a 5,000 foot view, what's your, what's your take on it? Well, I think you know, the, the genre of drone art is itself ambivalent. Um, 
listeners who may not be familiar with some of these works are, are probably imagining works that call out the atrocities of the US military or attempt to raise awareness or undermine these efforts in some way. And, and, and there are some works that certainly do that, but there's also a lot of work that seems relatively neutral and even aloof, you know, relative to those, those expectations. And I'm thinking here of Trevor Paglin's high magnification photographs of, of drones in flight in the, in the Untitled series. Um, the empty silhouettes of predator drones that are in city streets in James Bridle's Drone Shadows projects, um, the decontextualized sounds of drones and drone engines in a study in 21st century drone acoustics, uh, and you know the list goes on and on. Even the film Good Kill is is a sort of anticlimactic war film, and it's so much about the banal monotony of suburban life. Um, and so the question is, you know, why? How, how can we? explain this relative conflict between, um, it's interesting you bring up torture. I mean, what is it? What is a very violent apparatus, obviously, and then this somewhat septic presentation that we see in, in this genre. And so, you know, I think first there's a, there's a general and, and well-founded ambivalence about the possibility of art being oppositional in the current climate and um, a sort of skepticism, or at least um, an interest in reformulating those questions. But also, and this is where I really focus the conversation in the book, there's a symmetry between the modes of art production and everyday visual culture and the processes by which military drones um, operate. So not only does targeting take place through the same infrastructure of everyday media, cell phones, SIM cards, uh, social media, satellites, and so on, but the technology of drones is born out of everyday media like the PlayStation, um, television broadcast techniques of the NFL and, and so on. And, and all of this makes finding an outside from which one could stage a critique or opposition to drone power very difficult. And in other words, we're all sort of immersed in these very same relations that um, drones use to exercise their, their violence. And so with all that in mind, you know, I think that what's striking about this genre or body of work is its ambivalence and, and a sort of, I don't wanna say lack of clarity, but, a, but at least a, a kind of uncertainty, maybe even unwillingness to occupy that traditional oppositional relationship. In the book, you develop the concepts of tactical animism and simple triggers to read drone art. Can you explain those con concepts briefly and, and let us know what they provide you? Sure. You know, one of the things I really wrestle with in the book, especially in the first two chapters, is the larger ramifications of a system of targeting that's structured less around the identity of its subjects than the fulfillment of conditions. And certainly drone strikes have targeted specific individuals. You know, the, the media has focused on the kill list and, and, and other instances where high profile individuals were, were targeted. Um, but according to some military insiders, the majority of strikes, perhaps, are based on what's called signature strikes. And, and in these instances, targets are identified according to what's called a, a disposition matrix of behaviors, locations, personal relationships. And, you know, listeners are probably most familiar with this logic via the practice of the double tap, in which those who, say, come to the aid of... Uh, a victim of a drone attack or even attend the funeral of a suspected terrorist are themselves targeted 
by virtue of their presumed connection to the deceased or, or, or the injured. Um, so, you know, again, intelligence analysts have, have reported that signature strikes not only occur fairly frequently, but sometimes by relatively banal scenarios like a, a bridge that suddenly empties at night, a border crossing conducted under, you know, suspicious circumstances, um, or the possession of a cell phone that was used to contact a person of interest, that's a, a big one. So working from this you know, analysis, I discussed the way in which the kill chain prompts events, objects, and subjects to produce identities necessary for killing through a kind of digital animism, um, which presents actionable targets uh, for, for operators. The, the book struck me as refreshingly promiscuous in its engagement, in its engagements with theory, in the sense that you don't seem, at least on the surface, to plant your flag um, in a particular theoretical camp or theoretical approach. So can you talk a little bit about how you use theory in your work and what you see the role of theory in drone studies more broadly to be? Yeah, I'm so glad you you had that experience with the book. You know, I, I, I went through an early period um, where I was heavily influenced by Deleuze and one of the most important things that I, that I took from that period is this seemingly simple observation that theory does something, um, that concepts are, are productive. And, you know, starting from this really basic assumption has been productive for me because it means that, yes, you can utilize Adorno, for example, to talk about the motif of the bug splat, which I will be discussing in the talk in just a few minutes here as an embodiment of the speed and violence of, you know, of industrialization without necessarily agreeing with the entirety of his body of work or, or you know, overlooking some of the more problematic sections of, of his work. And so the idea is that theory takes you somewhere. And I think that's really important for drones because as I mentioned at the beginning of our, our interview here, so many of our assumptions um, are called into question by their operation. And there may not be, especially in the beginning of drone studies, there certainly wasn't a, a ready-made theoretical paradigm that one could simply superimpose on this field. So it seemed to kind of necessitate a, a bricolage um, approach. And I, I think that is reflected in, in the book. I have to say that uh, my, I, my, again, my own um, trajectory is similar. You know, I, I have a lot of debts earlier in my thinking um, and my approach to the work of critique to Deleuze as well. And I take a similar kind of kind of view. And I think it is actually really important here. I mean, um, for example, in the context of drones, um, if we tie ourselves rigidly to a kind of biopolitical reading of power, for instance, um, it might occlude or hide um, some other important aspects of, of what drones do, um, both in the military, but in particular in their, in their applications um, well outside that. Um, one of the interesting things about drone studies as a kind of transdisciplinary field is the sheer breadth of perspectives and associated methodologies. So how would you describe the research methods that you bring to bear on drones? Yeah, that's so true. And, and another reason that I was attracted to this, this field. So, you know, my starting points are from a disciplinary perspective, at least, art history, media studies, and, and critical theory. Um, however, pursuing 
this research required that I really branch out into animal studies, and, and we'll hear more about this in my talk in just a few minutes, um, geography, and even theater history, which I sort of dip a toe into in, in the book. Um, I also had to really take a deep dive in the inner workings of digital media um, in a sort of non-theoretical nuts and bolts kind of way, just to understand how the kill chain works. And it, it is such an overwhelmingly complicated field of organic and inorganic agencies and, and processes and protocols. And, you know, before I could really formulate the arguments of, of the book, I, I just had to get into a sort of operational sphere, knee deep in, in that sphere. Um, so, you know, looking at the distributed networks, the GPS satellites, the role of SIM cards and, and the larger implications of, of all of this as they are then filtered through and migrate into drone art, because I think that technical infrastructure has everything to do with not only the larger cultural implications of drones that we've been talking about, but the way in which they resurface in, in this genre. So I see drone art and art and drones separately as the convergence of multiple discourses. And so it's really about assembling a toolbox, you know, for, for a given cultural artifact or concept. And in the case of, of drone studies, it, it's a quite expansive one. The power of that really comes through in the book, I think, because it's not just a compelling, really compelling book about drone art. It is a compelling book about drone warfare and drone technologies. And that that depth of understanding and depth of research into the systems themselves and into their kind of military applications and networked um, infrastructures and so on really does kind of give um, that uh, analysis of drone art as a kind of ambivalent practice a, a real weight because it's, it is tied to this like deep understanding um, of the infrastructures themselves. Um, what piece of drone studies research has most influenced your own thinking on the subject? Gosh, that's a that's a tough question. But just piggybacking off our our last question, you know, Derek Gregory's um, work is is such a, a useful, comprehensive, and exhaustive study of all of those processes and protocols within a sort of military history context and. The Geographical Imaginations website that he has, I just highly recommend. He's very active on there, and I've seen him give some fantastic presentations. So that was a critical source for me, um, branching out into the military history component of, of drones. And I think also Shamayu's Theory of the Drone was an early work that was very important, uh, partially because of its timing. I think that came out maybe in 2013 or, or, or so, which was, feels like sort of the beginning of the field and one of the first real monographs um, dedicated to, you know, the cultural sort of ramifications of drones and connecting that to the inner workings of drones. So I'd, I'd say just in terms of my early evolution, those two works or the body of work in Derek Gregory's case were really influential. Since then, of course, there's just been so much fantastic work that's come out um, the Life in the Age of Drone Warfare Anthology with Duke, which I happen to be lucky enough to have an essay in. Um, Karen Kaplan's Aerial Aftermaths, who I know is playing a part in your, your series here. Um, Claudette Lauzon <clears throat> has done numerous presentations on drone art and she has a, um, she's working on compiling a, a monograph and I'm, I'm really excited for that. But you know, your question's such an interesting one because it, it does sort of assume that there is a, 
a canon or a field that has been established around drone studies. And I think that's, that's true. Um, so it, it was sort of a matter of piecing together relevant text for, from surveillance studies, visual studies, media theory, uh, and, and so on. And, and the, the nice thing about this though, is if you go to a drone conference, it feels like this field has really preserved that crazy expansive interdisciplinary nature. I mean, you know, I went to, uh, presented at a conference in Denmark, at Southern Denmark University, and they're doing a lot with drones there. And, you know, we had presentations from media theorists and art historians next to engineers that were looking at, you know, the, the very technical nuts and bolts issues. And I, I, I can't really think of other fields that are that directly interdisciplinary. You know, often you have a scholar sort of stepping out of their comfort zone and dipping a toe in other fields, but, um, I just see in, in this particular field so much collaboration uh, across disciplines. Um, and and I, I'm just thrilled that that has sort of been preserved as this field has come into being from those early moments of Derek Gregory and Shamu and so on. A lot of fantastic uh, recommendations there that I, that I would heartily um, uh, second. So what's next for you and your research, Thomas? So I'm at the very early stage of a book um, tentatively entitled Sensor Worlds, A Theory of the Networked Object uh, that considers contemporary sensor art in relation to a broader sphere of the Internet of Things. Um, so contextualizing work such as Popel's Choir or Mika Rottenberg's Ceiling Fan composition alongside the smart refrigerator, the networked home, the mobile device, um, uh, it, it, so as to kind of distill a theory of the digital object that, that operates across media and disciplines. And even though it's a departure in terms of the, the content, you can hopefully see from that short description that those relationships of symmetry that we've talked about earlier do kind of inform a way of looking at art objects um, outside of the traditional context of, of the museum or the art world and so on. And so I, I think that I'm carrying that forward, despite the fact that the, the subject is a, a bit of a departure. Well, that sounds really exciting and it actually connects in with um, uh, some of the new areas my research is going into. So I really look forward to um, seeing that work as it, as it materializes. Um, Thomas, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, I really appreciate it. And now, here's Thomas Stubblefield with his talk, The Ornithology of Drone Art. Throughout history, war has served as a powerful catalyst for the colonization of the animal body, co-opting non-human life in order to extend the sensory and or physical capacity of the war machine. These efforts have generally proceeded from enduring hierarchies between human and animal. The logic of the war animal thus appears to reiterate the modernist pursuit of an infinite expansion of human agency via prosthetic supplement, with the animal serving as simply one more auxiliary organ of Freud's prosthetic god. In practice, however, the entanglement of the animal body with the technologies of war suggests a less stable and deterministic trajectory, one in which the zoological component proves capable of not only exceeding these attempts at capture, but also destabilizing the anthropomorphic base of this narrative in the process. These seeming affirmations of human dominance over non-human life are in fact always already simultaneous with the production of what I will call the animal remainder. Most immediately this remainder encompasses that part of animal agency that exceeds human influence at the site of extension. 
However, reading this excess diachronically presents the prospect of a second layer whereby a disembodied and virtual animal agency circulates within the machine, continuing to exert influence upon the apparatus long after the animal body has been left behind. Excavating this vestige of the zoological within contemporary martial networks not only presents alternate histories outside of the progressivist narrative of technology, but also opens up new ways of reading the various modes of convergence that accompany the trope of the animal in drone art. This presentation begins the process of unearthing the animal from the modern drone by discussing the integration of birds into combat during the first half of the 20th century. In these early exper experiments, drones not only offered a means of materializing an enduring connection between flight and surveillance, which had occupied the imaginary for centuries, but perhaps more importantly, introduced the time-space differential of an aerial proxy through which a thoroughly modern asymmetry, the thoroughly modern asymmetry of warfare would come into being. Two critical touchstones or moments of rupture animate this narrative. First, the displacement of motor and ocular functions to the animal via Dr. Julius Neubronner's experiments with pigeon photographers during World War I and second, the outsourcing of processes of targeting to pigeons in B.F. Skinner's Project Orcon. Through these early initiatives, birds were called upon to formalize a sensory motor schema that would echo through successive martial technologies before materializing in the technological interfaces of the modern drone. The emerging genre of drone art acknowledges the presence of this undead body by way of two distinct modes of convergence. The first, represented by Mato Atom's short film, Seagulls, seeks to challenge drone power by accelerating its tendency toward interpenetration and folding and hybridity. While the second, exemplified by the Nada Bug Splat installation in Pakistan, pursues similar ends by actively extracting the human from its entanglement with the animal. By prompting the technological interface of the drone to divulge its animality, these works imagine not only alternate histories of war, but also alternate realizations of its technologies. In this regard, the inverse modes of becoming represented by these works access complementary operations that collectively reproduce the animal assemblages of drone power so as to steer their capacity for becoming away from the imperial ends of networked warfare. In the first decade of the 20th century, a pharmacist in Kronberg, Germany named Julius Neubronner began using pigeons to deliver prescriptions to a local hospital. After one of his pigeons lost its way and went missing for several weeks, the doctor and part-time inventor devised a way to track the routes of his birds. With lightweight double lens cameras attached to their breast, the birds would unknowingly, unknowingly take pictures of the ground below at regular intervals. The timing of this operation was governed by a pneumatic rubber ball, which was pumped with air beforehand according to the distance to be traveled. As the pressure decreased, a spring system triggered the shutter and advanced the film to the next frame. Recognizing an affinity between the ability of these pigeons to grant visual access to otherwise inaccessible landscapes and the operations of military reconnaissance, Neubronner began a series of tests to gauge the readiness of these birds for the battlefield. The results were encouraging. 
Not only were the birds largely indifferent to explosions, but they were also skilled at flying low enough to get highly detailed images, while at the same time evading enemy fire. The doctor quickly patented the invention under the, under the title, Method of and Means for Taking Photographs of Landscapes from Above, and not long after the Prussian army purchased his camera and flashy dovecote darkroom combination used for developing images on location. While pigeons would remain an important means of transporting encrypted information throughout 20th century warfare, their stint as wartime photographers would be brief. Just as World War I was beginning, Neubronner was informed by the Prussian War Office that, quote, the introduction of aerial photography from aircraft had rendered the project obsolete, removing the parallax distortions and blurred focus that characterized the work of the avian photographer Airplane-mounted cameras produce standardized and scalable images. In this arrangement, gyroscopes, barometers, and the sensorium of the human operator collaborated to consistently align the film plane with the horizon so that accurate measurable distances could be extracted from aerial images. As a result, the coherent and singular vantage point of the photograph, which was subordinated to indices of animal movement in the pigeon photographs, was resurrected as a properly cartographic gaze in the aerial reconnaissance photographs that followed. In turn, the modern airplane was no longer simply a means for delivering bombs or transporting bodies, but now, as Lieutenant Colonel McLeod put it in 1919, also served as, quote, a traveling observation platform. Whereas modernism staged these interventions as momentary deferrals to the animal body in order to realize a new sensorium, the Pigeon Project in Kronberg articulated these same relations in less deterministic terms. Specifically, as Neubronner's camera fails to fully conform to the animal body, it presents a mode of convergence that recognizes the persistence of non-human agency within these assemblages. Pigeons have a 340 degree field of vision, which is made possible by the bifovial structure of their eyes. Unlike the human eye, which contains a single concentrated center of receptors that focuses vision in a frontal direction, the eyes of pigeons, like many birds, articulate two visual systems, frontal and lateral. This structural heterogeneity produces dual focus, focal points which do not necessarily operate in the service of parallax view, but rather allow vision to move between binocular front vision and monocular side view. As Howard and Rogers describe, quote, when threatened, lateral-eyed animals such as the pigeon, pigeon turn their eyes outward to gain panoramic vision at the expense of losing binocular overlap. When they wish to get a better view of something ahead of them, they converge their eyes to increase binocular overlap at the expense of some loss of panoramic vision. By organizing light around a single receptive, a single receptive surface of the film plane, the camera articulates a mode of seeing that contradicts the non-hierarchical relation between center and periphery of pigeon vision. The ascendancy of the camera's singular vantage point and comparatively narrow angle of view place the pigeon in the service of a familiar anthropomorphic mode of extension. And yet, despite this anthropomorphism, these photographs with which Eric, sorry, which 
Ruth Erickson so wonderfully describes as, quote, redolent with the activity of their own making, visualize an indexical presence of the animal that exceeds the confines of representation. Through their off-centered compositions, expansive spaces, and hints of the animal body itself, and you can see in the bottom right image there the wings of, of the pigeon. These photographs summon an animal remainder, an excess that resides on the boundary of presence and absence. In this tension between the human-centric translation of reality into an image and the indexical presence of the animal body, these images articulate this animal outside in futural terms as a presence that will circulate through successive technologies, first as a living body and then as a formalized mode of processing sensory information. This possibility is confirmed by Skinner's World War II Project Orcon, or Organic Control, a government-funded research project in which pigeons were placed in the nose cone of a missile so as to guide it to its target during flight. Inside, the birds would peck at an image of the target produced by a camera obscura. The locational information harvested by the screen would then be used to automatically open and close chambers on the sides of the missile to guide its path. Although Skinner's project proved highly effective in initial tests, it was eventually replaced by a guided missile system developed by RCA, which allowed human operators to remotely control missiles via a television signal transmitted from the nose of the explosive. Not only did the system use the same airframe as Skinner's project, but so too would the interface and screen of the pigeon be reproduced nearly identical for the, identically for the human operator. In Skinner's prototype, the plate upon which the image was projected was coated with a semiconductor that was activated by a gold electrode attached to the bird's beak. RCA's BAT system revamped this technology as the pickoff display converter, which allowed human radar, radar operators to convey locational data by tapping a particular area of the screen with a special tool a method that demonstrated greater accuracy and speed than verbal description. In Project Orcon, the lack of a common language between animals and humans necessitated an indexical and embodied mode of sign making. The zoo semiotics that emerged from this encounter would structure human interactions with remote technologies long after the disappearance of the animal operator. One need only look at drone technologies such as Argus IS to find confirmation of this relationship. Here, the avian prehistory formed by the work of Neubronner, Skinner, and others comprises an undead body that effectively redistributes the parameters of human and non-human agencies within martial networks in order to realize a comprehensive system of ground surveillance. Focusing nearly 400 sensors through multiple image-stabilized telescopic lenses, the Argus system is able to monitor all moving objects within an area of 36 square miles in real time from a single aerial vehicle. Live feeds are stitched together into an image with, which acts less as a totality than as an interface through which users can access highly detailed concurrent images alongside broader contextual views of the same scene and or multiple fragmented views of other locations. The spatial montage formed by this live image mosaic actualizes an animal remainder of earlier systems. 
creating a hybrid mode of vision through which the human eye is able to take on an animal dimension via the technology's simultaneity of panoramic lateral vision and high resolution frontal views, just as uh, the pigeon structure of vision that I discussed earlier. Similarly, the formalized view by which these modes of vision were made accessible to human operators in Skinner's project and the BAT system that followed resurface in the familiar language of the touchscreen. As the Argus interface translates taps, drags, pinches, and swipes to martial modes of surveillance, human fingers act as the beak of this missing animal body as they effectively reconfigure the image according to an avian mode of sensing. This brief history illustrates what Donna Haraway describes as the co-adaptation that follows from the convergence of media, animals, and humans. Writing on a spate of television shows that utilize critter cams to give audiences access to the animal world. She explains, insofar as I and my machines use an animal, I am used by an animal with its attached machine. I must adapt to the specific animals, even as I work for years to learn to induce them to adapt to me and my artifacts in particular kinds of knowledge projects. Specific sorts of animals and specific ecologies and histories make me adapt to them, even as their life doings become the meaning-making generator of my work. If those animals are wearing something of my making, our mutual but unidentical co-adaptation will be different." End quote. While one can simply place a camera, while one cannot simply place a camera on an animal and expect to faithfully capture animal vision, Haraway reminds us that this does not necessarily mean that the medium of photography and its human operator are not reconfigured by virtue of this encounter with the non-human animal. In this regard, her comments clearly go further than a simple critique of humanistic modes of extension via the animal by associating this process with the extended temporal narrative of ad adaptation, she suggests that this relationship extends beyond the immediacy of these assemblages, forming a zoological paradigm through which histories of technology can be read. In these terms, the animal excess is not so much the causal agent behind contemporary drones, i.e. does not provide the direct inspiration for or serve as the predecessor to these technologies in a linear or deterministic way, but rather presents an outside that is partially recouped by successive generations of technology. It is this ability of civilian media to not only reveal this persistence of the animal within military technology, but to co-opt its powers of becoming that the film Seagulls seeks to harness. Seagulls is a short experimental work that centers on the relationship between a young woman and a drone. Throughout the work, the drone refuses the inv invisibility of conventional modes of surveillance and speaks to the unnamed female character through Facebook statuses and subtitles, which appear on the bottom of the film frame. Over a montage of the female character's birth, childhood, and adolescence, we read, quote, I watched you grow up, I followed you in the forest. At one point, the young woman addresses the drone with a question that she types into her Facebook status window. Quote, why are your eyes so big? As the film cuts to a close-up of the lenses within the drone's rotating turret, a subtitle explains, 
so I can see you better. These enclosed and inaudible exchanges establish a sense of intimacy between the inorganic surveiller and the organic surveilled. Eventually, as the hierarchies of conventional modes of surveillance buckle under the weight of connectivity, a familiar horizontal mode of power comes into being. And yet, despite the openness and transparency of these encounters, spatially, Siegel's reiterates the remove that traditionally structures practices of surveillance. Communicating exclusively through images and screens, the drone and its subject occupy separate diegetic spaces throughout the film. Everyday scenes of the girl's adolescence are cross-cut with sequences of the drone moving through a kind of digital ether in which images of the same or similar events ebb and flow within the network's potentiality. Their paths flow in parallel to one another and yet never seem to touch. All of this changes in the final scene when the drone suddenly appears at a vacant beach where the young woman is sunbathing. For the first time, this dispersed present assumes a coherent and singular form which hovers above the bikini-clad young woman. Without a word, it suggestively lowers its landing gear as if to penetrate her. As the young woman arches her body and quickens her breath, the plane abruptly turns into a blood-drenched wolf, frozen in pursuit of a red balloon. The use of the intraframe transition of compositing positions the animal as the fulcrum by which the progressivist narrative of technology is folded in on itself, producing an archeological history of the drone in which the animal is co-present with its inorganic successor. With the next cut, the drone returns, only now it is surrounded by a swarm of identical UAVs floating in the distance. This panoramic shot diagrams the dynamic exchange that has taken place as the human in the foreground, the animal in the middle ground represented by the seagulls, and the inorganic presence of the drone in the background now circulate within the frame as co-constituent forces. The interpenetration the scene visualizes is as much ontological as sexual, a shape-shifting that pushes this convergence of agencies beyond human-centric models of extension. The ability of the film to divulge what Haraway calls the, quote, animal-human technology hermeneutic relation is bolstered by its intertextual relations to the familiar fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, as mentioned previously, not only does the unnamed female ask the drone, why are your eyes so big, but so does it admit to following her into the woods earlier in the film. However, it is the abrupt appearance of the wolf at the end of the film that unlocks these otherwise buried references. The introduction of this intertextual layering at this particular moment is telling, as it suggests a productive overlap between the cultural function and historical roots of this tale and the animal-human hybridity that occupies the film in this final scene. In a well-known version of the story, Little Red Riding Hood is eaten and then cut out of the wolf's belly by a lumberjack, who then fills the animal's stomach to prevent him from running after them when he wakes up. Alan Dundies has argued that this feature of the narrative is a direct reference to ancient puberty rites and that the young girl's dramatic emergence from the wolf is synonymous with her having achieved womanhood. In this, she moves from a state of non-differentiation via the entanglement with the animal to a fully formed and autonomous individual who is recognized by the community as such. In the case of seagulls, this hybridity 
sorry, this hybrid form turns back upon a technical infrastructure, associating the interpenetration of animal and human with the violence of drone power. As a result, the role of the sexual predator of the drone slash wolf is to join with the human body so as to return it to a state of non-differentiation that can be internalized and recirculated as potentiality within the technological interface. Through this web of shifting ontologies, the animal comes to loosen and transmogrify, forming an enfleshed convergence of forces that exemplifies what Akira Lippitt refers to as the Annie metaphor. Lippitt explains that as the animal is subject without human language, the point of contact between these two systems marks the limit of the latter. And yet because of the original topography that humans and animals share, the animal also brings to language something that is vital. Specifically, it presents the possibility of breaching the symbolic, enacting a specific mode of embodiment that Lippitt describes as, quote, a metaphor made flesh, a living metaphor in which the metaphoricity of the metaphor collapses, becoming meta metamorphic rather than metaphoric. In its surpassing of the analogical aspect of metaphor, this constellation not only bears witness to a complex and nonlinear history between the animal and human, but in so doing implicitly offers the means by which these assemblages might be opened up to their constitutive parts. As works such as Siegel's contextualize these relationships within the infrastructure of the drone, this archive of technical transactions and animal sensing is rendered mobile and fluid, producing what Deleuze describes as zones of indiscernibility. In this way, the animal catalyzes a mode of convergence that resists both, both the human bias of extension and more broadly, the identities and hierarchies necessary to sustain the asymmetries of the global counterinsurgency. While it is tempting to universalize this strategy into a general program of opposition, the nature of drone power and the history it incorporates refuse such a totalizing gesture. This becomes apparent when shifting these relations to the discourse of war and its recurrent trope of the animalized other. Here processes of becoming animal become entangled with practices, practices of bestialization a shifting set of rhetorical and technical operations by which subjects are deprived of human status in order to justify their status as targets. As excavating the technozoological unconscious in this context, risk reinforcing the very systems of violence artists seek to reimagine, an opposing set of interventions into drone power comes into focus. Inverting the operation of Adam's film these practices utilizes, utilize processes of differentiation and individuation to wrestle identities free from the field of becoming that surrounds the figure of the animal. In these instances, the strategic regression to stasis, specificity, and identity serves to interrupt a mode of martial becoming that itself utilizes the interpenetration of human and animal as a means to engender violence. Through his notion of theoretical racism, Etienne Balibar illustrates the way in which a dialectical relationship between human identity and the animal reinforces racial violence. As capitalism demands that humans be extracted from animals, quote, by animal means, 
i.e. the survival of the fittest, unfettered competition, and so on. The non-human is both internalized within the subject and posited as the absolute other. When this articulation of difference was paired with social Darwinism in the 19th century, says Balibar, it provided the condition of possibility for a self-sustaining racialized history. Quote, man's animality, animality within and against man, hence the systematic bestialization of individuals and racialized human beings, is thus the means specific to theoretical racism for conceptualizing human history. Bestialized at the hand of history, an identity of the other as animal circulates as natural within the present, such that the indiscernibility of the human vis-a-vis -vis the animal becomes the basis for repression and violence. This regressive mode of hybridization is expressed most explicitly in the context of war, where establishing the animality of the other acts as a critical component of lifting the taboo against killing. Nick Haslam's seminal psychological study on dehumanization formalizes this relationship by identifying a specific animalistic mode at work within this discourse. In these instances, the association with the animal allows the other to be portrayed as devoid of self-control, higher level thinking, and morality, all of which serves to deny the subject his or her status as human. These practices can be performative, as in, for example, the transportation of the Jews to concentration camps via overcrowded cattle cars, or more recently, the rituals of a group of rogue US servicemen who collected body parts of civilians as trophies as if they were wild game. However, this animalistic mode is more often presented at a rhetorical level where associations of the enemy with the animal seem to function as a prerequisite for mass killing. These historical relations of bestialization also inform drone warfare which has in fact cultivated its own unique non-human rhetorical figure to expedite anonymous killings from afar. A 2012 Rolling Stones article entitled The Rise of Killer Drones, How America Goes to War in Secret, revealed that it is accepted lingo among CIA military and drone pilots to refer to the casualties of drone strikes as bug splats. The phrase was used in reference to the virtual modes of bombing, sorry, virtual models of bombing raids produced by military software. When projected on a large screen, the graphic indicating the site of detonation was said to resemble the remains of a flattened insect. Instead of the overt racism that has historically informed wartime discourse, bug splats conveys the utterly generic, a condition more than an identifiable enemy a situation or event instead of a bona fide other. In this environment, even the color of targets would appear to no longer be a fixed quality and is instead relegated to the sphere of probability. As one intelligence officer describes, quote, you actually get a picture of a compound and there will be something on it that looks like a bug splat, actually with red, yellow, and green, with red being anybody in that spot that's dead Yellow stands a chance of being wounded, and green, we expect no harm to come to individuals where there is green. While skin color can never be wholly collapsed with race, the removal of this epidural signifier by drone targeting systems nonetheless conceals the racial identity of the target. 
And yet this concealment initiates a series of strategic contradictions that allow drone power to perpetuate racial hierarchies. On the one hand, as J.D. Schnepf, who I know has been a speaker here a few weeks ago, uh, describes by, quote, turning all bodies into indistinct human morphologies that cannot be differentiated according to conventional visible light indicators of gender, race, or class, end quote. This mode of seeing understands all subjects as possible targets of drone violence. However, as this operation takes place almost exclusively within areas such as Pakistan, Yemen, or Somalia, it simultaneously preserves, quote, existing power hierarchies of race. Reading the trope of the bug splat in combination with this decoloring of the subject introduces a similar tension. Indeed, while the technological environment this term operates within eradicates identity, the term reiterates the ratio-speciest motivations of bestialization in its reduction of bodies of color to entomological waste. Marking a summation of behaviors, practices, and habits, the bug splat in this way serves as the technological equivalent of what Balibar describes as racism without race. With this in mind, it's clear that utilizing the animal as an aesthetic strategy runs the risk of reproducing this kind of bestialization that undergirds drone violence. Seagulls formed interspecies convergences in order to excavate an alternate historical narrative of the drone, one that displaced the progressivist human-centric narrative of innovation with a more circular entanglement of human and non-human agencies. However, this program focused on the representations of drones themselves rather than their targets. The latter project requires an alternate engagement with the animality of drones, one that would utilize the strategic introduction of a particular community and place, what Jordan Crandall calls geographical, the, the geographical specificity of the material event to provide the conditions by which a collective reimagination re of drone power could take place. <clears throat> Extending this logic to the current conversation of animality, one wonders what would happen if the generic placeholder of the bug splat were made to appear with the kind of material specificities and discrete identities that the drone system of targeting denies them. Could the process of becoming that animates martial networks accommodate such heavily localized and stubbornly static signifiers? Or would they buckle under the weight, finally delivering the, the asymmetries and space-time compressions of drone operation for a public for whom drones remain enig enigmatic and distant? It's precisely these questions that a recent art installation in Pakistan explores as it attempts to counteract the bestialization of drone violence. In the Khyber province of Pakistan, an artist collective installed a monumental image of the face of a child who had lost her parents and two younger siblings as a result of a US drone strike. Entitled hashtag not a bug splat, the haunting eyes of this 90 by 60 foot portrait gaze up toward the sky as if addressing someone or something beyond the reach of human vision. According to the group, the intended audience for the piece is twofold. First, it addresses mapping satellites, which in capturing the image inadvertently create, create a permanent memorial to this young girl and her slain family 
that has persist, persisted even after the work was dismantled. Second, this face was intended to engage the eye of the drone so that the operator in Arizona and the Marshall network in which he or she was immersed would be forced to acknowledge this data artifact as a human subject rather than a bestialized other. As the artist put it, the oversized portrait targets predator drone operators sitting thousands of miles away who refer to kills as bug splats. Now they'll see a child's face instead. Emmanuel Levinas argues that the face-to-face -face encounter provides the precognitive dimension of ethics. Critical to this status is the capacity of the face of the other to issue a particular and sustained injunction. It orders and ordains, in Levinas's words, us not to kill. It does, not, it does so not simply by exposing the helplessness or nakedness um, of the other, although this is certainly part of it, but more fundamentally by summoning a universal law that calls upon the seer to suspend violence against this individual. For Levinas, this commandment operates outside of symbolic relations and in fact precedes the will of the one who sees the face. Indeed, the nonviolence summoned by the face of the other cannot be attributed to human nature, nor can it even be explained by philosophy, according to Levinas. Far from the kind of moral, moral awakening popular culture traditionally attributes to such moments of recognition, the ethics of the face in this formulation is non-deliberative and non-reflective, hence its universality and power. As Levinas puts it, the first word of the face is, thou shall not kill. It is an order. There is a commandment in the appearance of the face, as if a master spoke to me. Shattering the narcissism of this martial gaze with a fully formed human other, the installation negates not only the relations of bestialization that turn humans into targets under drones, but also the necessary absence of the face in these relations of violence. As Shamayu points out, quote, the resolution of the images that members of the kill chain typically work from, although detailed enough to allow the operator to aim, is not good enough to distinguish faces. All that the operator can see are little figures blurred into facelessness. This facelessness is representative of a strategic disassociation that Svea Brownhart refers references in her insistence that, quote, what the drone's camera together with the lack of bandwidth and a global data transmission achieves is a highly functional condition that at least theoretically is meant to allow operators to fulfill their task without being troubled by empathy or relationality. Following Levinas, the interjection of the face into these relations would then act as a, cor a corrective to both the inability of drone power to recognize the other outside of the bestial mode and the excessive technological mediation upon which drone power relies, both of which strategically obscure the primary status of the face-to-face -face encounter and its insistence upon nonviolence. In interjecting singular identities and individualized narratives into the distributed relations of drone power, the project effectively inverts the strategies of seagulls so that the goal is no longer to engender strategic enfoldment between species, but rather forcibly extract the human from the animal. 
John Durham Peters has described zoology as, quote, the open book of media theory in as much as it is a constant study of varieties of embodiment and the diversity of endowments. Peter's interest in the animal is in part, is part of a larger project of recuperating natural formations such as fire, sky, and sea as instances of elemental media. However, this figure of the open book also serves as a productive means of thinking about media history, which is itself structured as a kind of bestiary through which one thumbs backwards and forwards in order to resuscitate various modes of embodiment and sensory experiences. This dynamic intersection of zoological, technological, and human spheres is in many ways the subject of a recent work by Dutch artist Bart Jensen. The project began with the passing of Jensen's cat, who was aptly named Orville after the Wright brother credited with ushering in the era of modern aviation. To pay tribute to his companion, Jensen created Orvilcopter, a zoo drone that resurrects his deceased pet as a functioning quadcopter. While these pieces are shown and flown in art galleries, most viewers encounter them through the artist's rather unassuming YouTube videos in which he stages test flights in what appear to be his backyard. Following a recurring format, Jensen's videos are bookended by takeoff and landing sequences that feature the artist manipulating the animal drone via remote. The sense of control and intentionality that these shots establish is, however, quickly compromised as the animal elevates and takes to sky, where the agencies of machine, animal, and human become less distinct. In this regard, these videos dramatize the work's capacity to perform drone art's contentious relationship to the animal, a relationship which articulates both the symbolic rupture of interspecies enfoldment and the entrapment of anthropocentrism. The distinctly human posture of these creatures whose legs, and, and by the way, he does multiple um, works along, along these lines. The, his cat was his first one. Um, of these creatures whose legs extend forward like an outstretched, like the outstretched arms of a familiar gravity-defying action hero is clearly the projection of an anthropoid fantasy of flight. This symbolic capture is made literal as these vehicles congeal into grounded sculptural objects. Resting on the pedestal in the white cube, the taxidermied flesh transforms these animal bodies into a kind of perverse trophy, conveying an absolute subordination to human will. The act of flight, on the other hand, pushes these contradictions toward productive ends, revealing the co-constitutive nature of these agencies and the dynamic non-chronologies that subtend their histories. As these uncanny vehicles invite the viewer to confuse the locomotion of the machine with the bodily motion of this deceased animal, one has the impression that it is the undead non-human rather than the artist's manipulation of the remote control that leads the aircraft through space. In this way, the containment of the animal body gives way to unassimilability, a symbolic dis dissonance by which the animal escapes not only the functionality of the progressivist narrative of technology, but also the categories upon which such relations rely. Suspended between life and death via the absolute stasis of taxidermy and the uncanny locomotion of the UAV, this animal corpse 
inadvertently performs the persistence of the non-human body within the war machine. As such, its movement is no longer simple locomotion, but rather the temporal and spatial performance of a counter-revolution between species and their technological supplements. This flight confirms the immortality of Neubrauner's pigeon photographers. Their silent insistence that the animal prehistory of drone technology not be sublated by its modern counterparts. It posits the animal as a structuring absence that haunts the drone's interfaces, operations, and possibilities. As the UAV buckles under the weight of its new flesh, these works come to occupy zones of discernibility that populate seagulls and not a bug splat. In so doing, they reveal a shared necromancy by which the animal body is continually resuscitated by the violence of war. And yet Jensen's zoo drone also refuses this recurring fantasy. After all, it's difficult to imagine how the inorganic appendages that adhere to this non-human body could establish tactical advantage. Hovering precariously in galleries and YouTube videos, these assemblages clearly do not assimilate the animal body as a means to improve flight, nor do they, nor do they supplement the human eye by way of this animal machine. This rejection of the prosthetic modality is evident not only in the sheer anti-utilitarian quality of these mashups, but perhaps more important in the ambiguity they generate with regard to agency and identity. And yet their status as works of art, presentation as subject of the human gaze and continual deferral to the human artist as origin of meaning all serve to return these bodies to the anthropocentric narrative of the wartime animal. In this way, Jensen's zoo drones embody drone art's conflicting approaches to interspecies convergence. Their movement between object and agency, stasis and flight, gallery and airspace charts the genre's contradictory program in which the non-human animal functions as both medium for interruption of drone power and means by which its operations are made possible. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of Drone Futures, a limited series on the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.